We got a Bible. Open up to the beginning. <laughs> Genesis chapter one is where we're going to be this morning. Um, and as we open a new series entitled The Story, I told you last week, if you were with us, that uh, maybe you've been in church all your life, maybe you're new to church, maybe you're just coming back to church after a, a little hiatus there for you, um, and maybe, maybe, you've, maybe you've read the Bible before, but you don't quite see how all the pieces fit together. And so over the course of these next several weeks, my aim is to help us see that the Bible is more than just a collection of isolated stories from Genesis to Revelation, but it's one story that's being told from creation to new creation, from creation to consummation. Now, that, that word is a little sketchy in our terminology. That means perfect ending, when God wraps everything up in a bow and he renews all things. So the Bible is telling that one big story across all of its pages. And the Bible is filled with intrigue. The Bible is filled with suspense. The Bible is filled with exhilarating stories that tie into this larger story. It's full of beauty and it's full of tragedy. The Bible is full of good and evil. The Bible is full of grace and judgment, life and death, of failure and redemption. The Bible is full of accounts of the might and majesty and power of the true God along with the vanity of impotent idols. The Bible is full of truth and quite a few liars as well are in the pages. The Bible is full of these things. The Bible is a story. Above everything else, it's a story. It's not a collection of isolated stories that have been collated by some editor one day to tell a, a, a bunch of people how to live, that each, each, each individual story has its own little moral, that if you take it and you apply it to it your life, then you just kind of live according to that little moral of that story. But the Bible is one big overarching story, and it forms for us as Christians what we would call a worldview. Now, a worldview are the lenses through which you process life. A worldview is the way that you understand and relate to the things that you see happening around you and the things that you feel happening within you. It gives you lenses through which to process all of that. It's a story that tells, so it's not, so it, it that kind of encapsulates, stop stuttering, encapsulates a worldview for us. And it gives us, gives us lenses through which to see everything, everything. The Bible is written over centuries, spans of centuries, by various authors into 66 books that tell the story of creation, fall, redemption, and renewal. And across its pages, you see all those things that come together. And if you don't recognize this, listen, here's one of the reasons that we want to drill down on this for the next several weeks. Because if you don't recognize it, then what you're going to do as you pick up any individual piece of the Bible, kind of like having a piece of a puzzle in your hands, right? If you've got a piece of the puzzle and all these pieces laid out on, on, on the table before you of this thousand piece puzzle, and yet you don't see the box top, it's hard to know where that piece fits and how it's connected to the whole if you can't see a picture of the whole. And so over the course of these next several weeks, we want to get a picture of the whole so that we can begin to see how some of these pieces fit together. Because if you don't see the whole, it's going to be real easy to get lost in the weeds of books like Numbers, right? How does that fit? Or books like Leviticus, or like Ezekiel there in the Old Testament, or Revelation there at the end of the New Testament. How do these things fit together? If you can't see the big picture, it's going to be hard to know where those little individual pieces go. 
So the Bible's a story, and it's a story just like every other story, except that while every other story and every other great myth or mythology that's ever been written in the pages of literature throughout human history, the Bible's a story just like all of those, except that while all of those stories contain themes that illumine truth, Right? You might have stories that contain themes of failure and redemption. You might have stories that contain themes of good and evil. And they're on the pages of literature scattered throughout human history. The difference between the Bible and all those other stories, though, is this. That while all those other stories contain concepts and truths, the Bible is true. It is true. I've been captivated for a very long time by the conversion of one of the greatest intellectual minds of the 20th century. His name is C.S. Lewis. Uh, he wrote the Chronicles of Narnia. So if you've seen the movies, probably familiar with him from at least that. Right? But he wrote, also wrote lots of other books. He wrote children's books. He wrote very weighty intellectual apologetic books. But C.S. Lewis wasn't born a Christian like none of us are. In fact, his progression toward Christianity started and he went from atheism to agnosticism, then to a, a full-blown apologist for the Christian faith. He was persuaded and convinced of the Christian faith. So he moved from denying the existence of God to saying, well, if God exists, then maybe, he, maybe he's out there somewhere like a deity and you can't really relate to him, to understanding the very personal God whom he defended until the day of his death. But on his progression from atheism to an apologist, C.S. Lewis talks about one very significant figure that God had placed in his life, and his name was J.R.R. Tolkien. And Tolkien was an author as well. He was a, a professor as well. He was a teacher as well. He wrote the, the Hobbit, the Lord of the Rings books. And he and Tolkien would have these conversations about, Tolkien was a Christian, here's Lewis, not a Christian, and they would have these conversations about literature because both of them were immersed in that world. And Lewis recounts in his own conversion story, he remembers a conversation that he and Tolkien had on one occasion in which they were talking about literature and the great myths and the great stories throughout human history and how Lewis was captivated by them. He was intrigued by them. He, he, he literally thirsted after them and he would scour the pages and read all these great stories as if he wanted them to be true. And Tolkien, he said, he said, he said remembered late one night as they sat and talked about this dynamic, he said, Tolkien said, listen, Clive, I don't know if that's what he called him, but probably so. Um, they were probably on first name basis, but listen, the reason that you read all these great pieces of literature and all these great stories and mythologies and you, there's something that stirs within you that wants them to be true is because all of those stories, all of those mythologies are pointing to one story that actually is true. That actually is true. So there, there really is an evil queen who deceived us into taking of fruit that would cause us to fall under a curse there really is a handsome prince who has come and by his love and his care and affection and from the kiss of his lips has awakened us from sleep. There really is a love so strong that it would turn all of our beastliness, it would tame it. He says, you read all those great stories and you're captivated by the truths that they contain because they're pointing to the one true story that's found in these pages. And Lewis speaks of that moment as a kind of aha moment for him on his progression toward faith. 
The Bible is indeed like all those other stories, except that while all those other stories contain truth, the Bible is true. It is. It's the true story of the world on these pages that God has recorded and preserved for us in human history. And so this morning, as we start to unfold this story across the pages of the Bible, we start where every story starts in the beginning. So if you've got a Bible in Genesis chapter 1, if you don't, it's going to be on the screen for you behind me. If you've got a phone, an iPad, tablet, whatever you've got, pull it out, pull it up, and let's go get to work. In Genesis chapter 1, we're going to read a lengthy passage this morning, but I want you to follow along with me. In Genesis chapter 1, begins with these words, in the beginning... God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And God said, let there be light, and there was light. And God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and he called the darkness night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And God said, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. And God made the expanse and separated the waters that were under the expanse from the waters that were above the expanse. And it was so. And God called the expanse heaven. And there was evening and there was morning the second day. And God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And it was so. God called the dry land earth, and the waters that were gathered together he called seas. And God saw that it was good. And God said, let the earth sprout vegetation, plants yielding seed, and fruit bearing trees, or trees bearing fruit, I apologize, in which is their seed, each according to its kind on the earth. And it was so. The earth brought forth vegetation, plants yielding seed according to their own kinds, and trees bearing fruit in which is their seed, each according to its kind. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning the third day. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years. And let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to rule the day and the lesser light to rule the night and the stars. And God set them in the expanse of the heavens to give light to the earth, to rule over the day and over the night, and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good, and there was evening, and there was morning, the fourth day. And God said, let the water swarm with swarms of living creatures, and let the birds fly above the earth across the expanse of the heavens. So God created the great sea creatures and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarm according to their kinds and every winged bird according to its kind. And God saw that it was good and God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the waters and the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And there was evening and there was morning the fifth day. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things and beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds and the livestock according to their kinds and every living, everything, everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man 
in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the heavens and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. And God saw everything that he had made. And behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning. The sixth day. Then down in verse two, three, uh, chapter 2, three verses. Verse 15. The Lord God took the man and he put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you, are sh- you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So where do we begin, right? First of all, let me begin by saying this. You have to begin by understanding what you have in front of you and what you don't have in front of you. This story is the beginning of the story of the world, the true story of the world that unfolds from Genesis to Revelation. But what you don't have in front of you, and it was never the author's intention to put it in front of you, is a scientific explanation for the origins of material creation. What you have in front of you is a theological explanation for the origins of material creation. Okay? Listen, this was written in a much different day than ours. It was written in a day in which there were competing stories, there were competing narratives for how we came to be who we are and where we are. It was written in a day where you had the Egyptians saying, hey, this is how everything came to pass. You had the Babylonians saying, this is how everything came to pass. You had the Canaanites saying, this is how everything came to pass. And into that world, into to that audience, to God's people in those, in those days where they had these competing narratives for how they came to be in existence, God gives the true account of how everything has come to pass, of how everything has come into existence. So as opposed to the Egyptians who had, and Babylonians and Canaanites who had all these multiple gods, the book of Genesis says there was one God. There was one God who's created everything. There was one God. And as opposed to all the, the aspects of creation being these, these deities that somehow controlled the seasons and the times and the harvest, where you had a sun god and a moon god and a, a fertility god and all these things that you worshipped each god in order uh, for them to provide to you the things that each of those gods were to provide, what you have here in Genesis is, there, is him saying that, no, all those things that you see around you, the sun and the moon, they're merely just fixed objects in the sky that God has set there that he has spoken into existence by his, the power of his word. They are not objects to be worshipped or deified or venerated. Rather, they are just objects that God has created as a part of material creation. There's one God who's brought all this into existence. 
See, when we come to Genesis 1, we want to bring our modern 21st century scientific questions about how everything happened. That's not what the author was concerned with when he wrote this. He was concerned with giving a theological explanation for how creation came to be. Not a scientific one. All right? It makes a big difference in the way that you understand Genesis. All right? Now, let me just go on and say uh, there's, there's four things that we want to drill down into this morning. That's kind of a foundational contextual issue, but there's four points we want to drill down into in this morning. And each one of these four points could be a sermon in and of itself. So we're going to have to move quickly. I feel a little like Burt Reynolds. Got a long way to go and a short time to get there. Some of you, that reference is like way over your head. Some of you got it um, if you were born before 1980. And so, um, <laughs> so here we go, right? Context. It's a theological origins of the universe. But what, what is this story saying to us? What does it say to us about where we've come from? First thing that pops off the page is this, is that the author of Genesis, or Moses, says that God makes everything out of nothing. He makes everything out of nothing. It's vitally important to see that God, what God creates is distinct from himself. It's distinct from himself. Because every other worldview that was operating in those days and in those times, God was kind of a part of creation. Genesis is saying, no, God is distinct from creation. He's distinct from it. If you look at the beginning of Genesis chapter 1, we see these words. In the beginning, God. In the beginning, God. In other words, before anything was, God is. Yes, present tense, God is, because there never was a time in which he did not exist. I was thinking about that this week, and my mind just started kind of like smoking a little bit, right, because it was just hurting so bad. Um, and so in the big, before anything was, God is. Think about that. Before there was any molecule or particle, God is. Before there was anything else that existed, before any matter or mammal, God is. Before any plant or person, God is. Before any dirt or water, God is. Before anything and everything, God is. And so when you look at that, in the beginning, God, in the beginning, God, God is the only self-existent and self-sufficient being who has ever existed or ever will exist. He's the only being who possesses what theologians call a seity. Now some of you are going, man, this is like making my head hurt. Listen, I'd rather make, make your head hurt than tickle your ears a little bit this morning. And so if you go out of here with your mind spinning a little bit, join the club, all right? He's the only being who exists with what, God call, what theologians call a seity. A seity is the fact that he's self-existent and non-dependent upon anyone or anything else. He does not need anything or anyone. A.W. Tozer, in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, said it this way. He said, Almighty God, just because he is almighty, needs no support. The picture of a nervous, ingratiating, which means he's seeking to please constantly, God fawning over men to win their favor is not a pleasant one. Yet if we look at the popular conception of God, that is precisely what we see. 20th century Christianity has put God on charity. In other words, God is so needy and he's so dependent upon us that he's kind of living off of our charity, what we give back to him. So, because so lofty, he says, is our opinion of ourselves that we find it quite easy not to say enjoyable to believe that we are necessary to God. But the truth is 
that God is not greater for our being, nor would he be less if we did not exist. That we do exist altogether of God, is of God's free determination, not by our desert, which means reward, and desserts are rewards for me, nor by divine necessity. So God is the only being who needs no one and nothing. Nothing at all. God is absolutely self-sufficient, absolutely self-existent, absolutely independent. He's distinct from all that he creates. And then in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The heavens and the earth. In Hebrew poetry, they would often state the two extremes of a spectrum to communicate everything between those two extremes. What is between the extremes of the heavens and the earth? This is a participatory part of the service. Everything, right? Everything. Everything is between those two polar extremes of the heavens and the earth. So he's saying that God, who is distinct from creation, has brought everything that we see, touch, taste, see, feel, or experience into existence. Every single thing. The reason there is something rather than nothing is because God creates, but notice how he does it. Those two words for create or made in Genesis 1. One describes the taking of raw materials that already exist and forming something out of them. Like you would take like a, a piece of lumber and build a piece of furniture. You would take ingredients in a casserole and put it all together and bake it and make something come out of that. So you take raw materials piece them together, create something. There's another word here in Genesis that refers to and describes the bringing into existence of something that has not previously existed. And this word is used multiple times throughout Genesis 1, in particular here when he creates the heavens and the earth. In other words, before God said, let there be the heavens and the earth, they were not. They were not. There was a time in which the only thing that existed was God. In absolute, absolute self-sufficiency, needing nothing from anyone or anything. So there is a definite distinction between the creator and his creation. Now, let me push on that a little bit this morning. You go, what, what does that mean for me? Here's what it means. Listen, sometimes, sometimes, like sometimes during the week as I'm preparing and studying, I'm like going, God, do I really have to say that? <laughs> like we kind of wrestle with that a little bit. Um, I feel like Jeremiah sometimes, like the weeping prophet just goes around teary-eyed all the time going, why do I have to say these things? But <laughs> then God says, well, who do you fear more, me or them? And then that kind of like he strong arms me into saying stuff like this. But what does it mean? Let's push on this a little bit. Here's what it means. It means that you and I are not the center of the universe. Nor are we the center of our lives. Let me say that again. You and I are not at the center of the universe, but God is. Listen, this is uh, the reason I say, like, I struggle saying this sometimes because it's so unpalatable in our culture. So unpalatable. Some of you, as soon as you hear that, it's like taking a bite of boiled liver in a cafeteria in Russia, and all you want to do is just kind of like the gag reflex, right? It's coming out, man. It's coming out. Because it's so unpalatable to hear someone say, you are not the center of the universe. To hear someone say, God does not need you. <laughs> what? 
God is not dependent upon you. I don't know about that. Maybe if you looked in the mirror recently, I have. Right? We are so wrapped up with ourselves. And for someone to say, God doesn't need you, that he would not be lesser if you did not exist, that because you exist, he is not greater, that he is absolutely, absolutely self-sufficient, absolutely self-existent, absolutely independent. He needs no one or nothing. God is the only being in the history of the universe who doesn't have any degrees of codependency in his relationships. That is what Genesis 1 is saying, that he's absolutely self-existent. And this rubs up against the pervasive narrative that's being broadcast in our culture so heavily. Yesterday, we celebrated my daughter's fifth birthday. Um, and so we rented out Urban Air there over in Rockwell. Not the whole thing. That would be way out of our price range. But we, they gave us a little table, right, and some bracelets to go jump with. Um, but so we went to Urban Air, had a little party there for us. And so had all these kids running around just, like, breathing in colonies of sickness-infecting germs, right? I'm sure every kid that was there last yesterday is going to be sick with something. Uh, and so we're there, just they're, they're bouncing and hopping and, you know, running up and down, eating, like, stuffing their face full of unrefined sugar, um, and just, just having a good time. Now, while you're in urban air, they're like pumping music the entire time. There's kids everywhere. And they're pumping music. All these songs are playing overhead. And one of these songs, just I was sitting there. I was standing next to Karen, and we were watching Sarah and some of the other kids running around one of the trampoline pads. And this song just kind of, my ears perked up when I heard this song. And so I started listening to the song. And it's a song called Reflection by kind of a Destiny's Child wannabe group called Fifth Harmony. I was a little critical. I was most definitely critical. Um, but <laughs> and some of you know what this song says, and so you're like, yeah, I know where this is going. But th- I want you to hear the, the lyrics to this song. It says, I must, I, I can't say it near as cool as they do. I must confess you're looking fresh. Yep, I'm impressed. Go ahead and flex. Everybody be hating the way you stealing the show. I told you, it doesn't sound quite the same. You can get at anything you want. And can't nobody ever tell you no. Don't need no filters on pictures before you put them on the gram. For those of you who need a little translation, that's Instagram. You can shut down the internet and they don't even understand. They don't make them quite like you. It ain't bragging if you know it's true. Where are you from? Must be heaven. You'd be rich if looking good was your profession. Think I'm in love because you're so sexy. And at this point, you would think she was like singing about some dude or this relationship she was in, somebody else. And then they say, boy, I ain't talking about you. I'm talking about my own reflection. I don't even know where to start with that. Right? To think... To think that we think so much of ourselves, and that's the narrative that's being, that's being communicated through our culture, is that you are at the center. You are the self-determining cause for your life. That what you say goes, and yet Genesis 1 comes to say no. There's only one self-existent. There was only one self-sufficient. There was only one independent being, and his name is not Fifth Harmony. He is infatuated with his reflection, not yours. 
while we tend to be infatuated with ours and not his. You and I are not at the center of the universe. You existing doesn't add any value to God. You not existing doesn't diminish any value from him. He would be God and supreme and authoritative and powerful and majestic and glorious whether or not you ever, you ever existed. What else does Genesis teach us? It teaches us also that God gets to define the boundaries for his creation. In Genesis 2, 15 to 17, God issues one prohibition. Everything else that he says they can have, he issues one prohibition. And he prohibits our first parents from eating of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And included in this prohibition is the consequence that would ensue from their taking of the forbidden fruit that they would surely die. They would surely die. One prohibition. He defines some boundaries for them. Everything else is, is good, but here's something that you need to avoid. Here's something that you need to stay away from. Here's something you need not do. Enjoy all the other good things that I've made except this. He puts one thing out of bounds for them. And many of us in modern uh, 21st century America, when we read that, again, it kind of makes us bristle. Because we think if God really, if really was a God of love, if he really loved us, then he would say he would just give us the freedom to follow our hearts. He'd give us the freedom to yield to our inclinations. He would give us the freedom to do whatever we determined to be best for ourselves. If God really was a God of love, then he would let us do what is right in our own eyes, that he wouldn't put anything out of bounds, that he wouldn't set anything off limits, that he wouldn't define any boundaries or borders for our lives. But I want you to think about this for a moment. I want you to think about this in relationship to those of you who are parents and to your parenting. Is it loving or unloving to define boundaries and borders for your children? It's one of the two. There is no third alternative. Is it loving or unloving to define boundaries and borders? Would it be loving, let me give you for some for instances, would it be loving or unloving? Listen, I grew up in South Louisiana. That's how they say it down there, not Louisiana, but Louisiana. I grew up down there on the bayous and marshes, and so going duck hunting and fishing, and there's alligators uh, swimming. Sometimes you see the alligators boiling the water. They get so many in a little area where there's a lot of food, they come up. Would it be loving or unloving to say to my children, hey, feel free, man, dive off the dock right here in a bayou filled with alligators and go swimming. I know you want to swim. That's really what your heart's telling you you want to do right now because you see that water. So go ahead and jump in. Make sure you wear a life jacket so your corpse can float to the top after they get done with you. Right? Is that loving or unloving? I think we would all agree that would be unloving. Is it loving or unloving to give a toddler a piece of wire in a room filled with uncovered electrical outlets to be shocked Near electrocuted. I think we would all agree that would be unloving to do. You got a boundary there. Would it be loving or unloving to say to my eight and five-year-old, I know what your heart is telling you and you really want to go ride your bike on I-30, that really big, long stretch of road out there, right? Feel free, just make sure you wear your helmet. Like, is that loving or unloving? You know that would be unloving as a dad, as a parent. Not to define some borders or boundaries, See, the, the, the one who is in authority gets to define the borders. The one who's in authority gets to define the boundaries for our lives. And God is the one who possesses all authority, all power, all might, all majesty. And he says, out of everything that I've created, here are the boundaries for you. You can play anywhere you want to within this field. Just don't cross that line. And what happened with our first parents happens with us 
time after time after time after time in our lives. Where God says, here's everything that you're able to enjoy, but don't go there. But what is it about our human nature that says, well, we've got to go there if we're going to be free and happy. We've got to go there. Right? We want to be autonomous. We want to be self-sufficient and not yield to the boundaries that God has established. When God gets to define them, God has the patent on humanity. He has the patent and the copyright on humanity. So he's the one who gets to define how it works, how it flourishes, and what would be devastating and destructive to it. And he has. And he has. And he draws boundaries for us. Let me ask you a question. When have you found your life to be in a trajectory of moving toward a place where there is wholeness and there is peace and there is flourishing? Is it when you have stayed within God's defined boundaries or when you've crossed over them? I know for me, it's been when I've crossed over them and things begin to get unraveled in my soul. God gets to define the boundaries. He is the author. He is the author. We want to be the authors of our own stories, don't we? We want to be, but God is the author. Genesis 1 tells us that. That our lives have not been unwritten. Psalm 139. um, Your eyes saw my unformed substance in your book. Were written every one of them. The days that were formed for me. When yes, yet none of them were. In other words, we want to write our own story. But we don't realize before we ever drew a breath in this life, God's already written it. He's already written it. The story of creation tells us, contrary to the thoughts of our minds and the desires of our hearts, that we are not self-sufficient and independent authors who are writing the script for our lives, but we're needy independent actors on the stage of human history, following the lead of a glorious and a good and a gracious author and director and producer. But whenever we want to become the authors and directors and producers of our own lives, it has profound shaping implications for the way in which we live. This is why people want to push the boundaries. This is what leads pushing those boundaries and borders away is what leads to gender transformation surgeries. It's what leads to abortions. It's what leads to racial disunity. All kinds of destructive behavior. When we want to be the authors and prop ourselves up to make a name for ourselves as opposed to the one whose name is most glorious. God gets to define the boundaries. Third, and I know we're moving, like I said, all these could be sermons in and of themselves. Trying to set the stage a little bit for where we're headed next. Third, God creates men and women in his image. God creates men and women in his image. And there's been no shortage of suggestions as far as, as to what this means. Right? It, it, you, you can find book after book after book after book and article and journal article after article after article after article about what this means to be created in the image of God. Some suggest it has to do with self-awareness. Some suggest it has to do with certain capacities we have as human beings like rationality, reason, emotion. Some suggest it has to do with physical appearance, that if God had a body, he would look like us which he did at one point in the story as it unfolds. But out of, out of all the things that are suggested, I'm, I'll just go ahead and show you my hand. I'm not sure that there's 
one thing that we can pinpoint that exactly being created in the image of God involves. I think it might be a, 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 a multitude of things. A multitude of things. But two of those, I think, from this text that stand out very clearly for us is this, is that God's created us as representative beings and as relational beings. As representative beings. Look at what he says in chapter 1 in verses 28 and following. He says, And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it, and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. He says, have dominion, have rule. In other words, God says, I want you to be my vice regents for creation. I've established everything, all the order here. I want you to rule over it, have dominion over it, subdue it, create culture. That's what I want you to do, he says. And this is one of God's expressed purposes for us, that we would serve as extensions and representations of his authority here within the created order. In the same way that if an ancient king were to go off to battle and he were to conquer a land, right, he might set up a, a, an image of himself, a statue of himself, in order to indicate to those citizens of that newly conquered country that even though his throne, even though his throne is in a distant land, his authority extends everywhere his image is seen. Like in the ancient Roman Empire, whenever uh, the, empires, the empire expanded across the Mediterranean world, Caesar would stamp his image on every coin, every coin. And so wherever those coins were traded and received as currency is where his authority extended to. And God has created men and women, humanity as his image bearers, as his representative beings, so that wherever humanity exists on the face of the globe, across every continent, in every country, in every community, God's authority extends across the entirety of the world as his representative beings to have dominion over and rule over creation. Now, we could push on this for a very long time. I'm just going to say one thing, and then we're going to move on. One of the things this means for us is this. As, 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 as God's representative beings who have been created to rule alongside of him over creation and the dominion that he's delegated to us, it means that we, what, one of the things that it means is this, is it means that we, can, we should rule over this world but not rape it. You know what I'm saying? We should rule over this world but not rape it. Okay, that we should use and leverage the natural resources that are here, but that we should also tr- seek to be responsible in the way that we do so. Right? That's, that's, uh, we could push on that for a very long time, but I want to push on something else a little bit harder. Okay? Not only are we representative beings, but we're also relational ones. Also relational ones. When God says, let us make man in our image, he uses there what's in the Hebrew called a divine plural And God, I don't think he's looking at a host of angelic bodies in the heavens or other gods. He's looking at himself, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. When he says, let us make man in our image, that we are created in the image of a relational God. And thereby, we are created for relationship both with him and with creatures created according to our kind. Other men and women. You were created for that. You were formed for that. God had that as an intention. It's inherent in who he is as God, Father, Son, and Spirit, who have been in perfect relationship with each other from all eternity past. There never was a time when the Father did not exist and the Son did not exist and the Spirit did not exist. And they were absolutely connected to each other from 
as far back as your mind can fathom. And that to be formed in God's image, a part of it means that you're created as one who's created for relationships in the image of a triune God who himself is relational. And so we cannot experience the fullness of what it means to be human apart from a loving vertical relationship with our creator and loving horizontal relationships with creatures according to our kind. And so if you feel, listen, I'm going to push on this this morning, if you feel hollow as opposed to like you're becoming whole, then it's because either one of those two relational dynamics is absent from your life. Either you do not have a loving relationship vertically with the God who's created you through his son, Jesus Christ, or you do not have real relationships, authentic relationships horizontally with creatures who were created according to your kind. If you feel hollow as opposed to you, like you're becoming whole because what it means to be really human, a part of what it means to be really human is that you live in relationship to the one who's created you and those whom he's created. In The Velveteen Rabbit, a children's book written by Marjorie Williams, um, there's a part in the book that speaks of these, the, the, these stuffed animals becoming real. I want to read to you the excerpt that she writes. It's really beautiful. She says, The velveteen rabbit turned to the old wise skin horse in the nursery and asked, What is real? Does it mean having things that buzz inside you and a stick-out handle? The skin horse replied, Real isn't how you are made. It's a thing that happens to you. When a child loves you for a long, long time, not just to play with, but really loves you, then you become real. Does it hurt? asked the rabbit. Sometimes, said the skin horse, for he was always truthful. Does it happen all at once or bit by bit? It doesn't happen all at once, said the skin horse. You become. It takes a long time. Generally, by the time you are real, most of your hair has been loved off. Your eyes drop out. You get very shabby. But once you are real, you cannot become unreal again. It lasts for always. It lasts for always. She captures this truth that what it means to be, part of what it means to be really human is to be engaged in loving relationships both vertically and horizontally. And if one of those is lacking, there's a sense of hollowness in your soul as opposed to a sense of becoming whole. This is one of the reasons we have life groups here at Redeemer. It's one of the reasons we have places for people to connect relationally where we open God's word together and we talk about the realities of life and how this shapes and informs how we live, but it's also a place where you can be fully known and fully loved. See, some of you have had the experience before where you felt like you were fully known and rejected because of failures in your past or even sins in your present. Some of you have had the experience where you felt like maybe you were loved Partly, but you weren't really fully known. And in order to be loved partly, you had to stay somewhat hidden. But listen, the only way, the only way that you become real and substantial and whole and don't continue to wither away into hollowness is if you're in a place where you're fully known and fully loved. And listen, there is that dynamic absolutely vertically because God has shown us that. And we'll get to that further on in the story about how he sent his son to show that we are fully known and fully loved. But you also need that horizontally to be in relationships with people 
that you can share your dreams and aspirations, your failures, the greatest flops in your life, and know they're still going to put their arm around you and pray for you and pray with you, and they're going to push into some of those areas of your life and hold you accountable to some things, and you're going to have real conversations about real things. We were created in the image of God to be relational beings. But finally, finally, and we're going to have to fly. God creates, makes everything good for his glory and our good. He makes everything good for his glory and our good. In verse 31 of Genesis 1, And God saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. So at the end of chapter 1, God looks back and he sees everything that he's made, the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry ground, the fish and the birds, the mammals and men. He stands back and he beholds all of it, takes it all in, and he says, behold, it was very good. Now that word good, we typically tend to think of it as being morally good, right? Because we tend to think of it in contrast to evil. But I want you to think about it with me for a minute. The word good in the pages of the Hebrew Bible doesn't just necessarily have that one narrow meaning of being morally good. It also means it's beautiful, it's delightful, it's pleasurable, it's joyful. Also that it's correct, So I don't think that God stands back and he looks at all of men and all the material creation and he says it is all morally good. There is a sense in which that is true about men, but that is not true about the non-moral agents of creation like trees and rocks and plants and fish and birds. So if he's looking back at all creation saying it is very good, what is he saying? I think what he's saying is this. He looks back and he takes in everything that he's made and he says, it's all good in the sense that everything that I have made is working like it should. It's working like it should. It's working correctly. So when God looks back, he says, everything is in order. Everything has design. Everything is in its place. Everything is functioning appropriately. So he makes everything that way. But he does so, the Bible tells us elsewhere, for his glory. And the, and, the, and the Psalms are and the prophets are littered with this kind of language about how God has made the heavens and the earth for his glory. The heavens declare the glory of God in Psalm 19.1. Psalm 98, 7-9. Let the seas roar and all that fills it, the world and those who dwell in it. The rivers clap their hands and the hills sing for joy before the Lord. So if all, all creation is gathering together for this massive worship service. The rivers are clapping and the seas are roaring and the mountains are bowing down. All this is happening. But then the pinnacle of his creation and humanity in the book of Isaiah In Isaiah 43, 7 and 21, it says that he's gathering from all across the globe. He says, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praises. Why did God bring us into existence? Same reason the rest of creation exists is to bring glory and praise to God. Creates everything with order and purpose and design. Everything's working like it should at the end of Genesis so that he might be glorified. But notice that he also creates it for our good. 
The text in Genesis 1 to 25 goes on and on and on about how he makes everything good. The light, uh, the, dark, uh, the, the light and the sea and the land and the, the dry ground, all these things. There's a logical connection that says, and, and God, and God made, and God said, and God said, and God said. And then you get to verse 25 or verse 26, and it says, then God said. Let us make man in our image. In other words, he did all this in verses 1 to 25 to get to verse 26 to have everything in order for us to be able to flourish in this creation that he's brought into existence and to be able to enjoy all the good things that he's made and ultimately to enjoy him forever. That's what God envisions. That's what, what, I, that's what moves God to create. To be able to share his glory that would satisfy the longings of hearts for all of eternity in this place that has been ordered in such a way that humanity can flourish. This is why, this is why, listen, all the good and pleasurable things that you enjoy in life, from a good meal to a good vacation, okay, to good sex within the bounds of covenant marriage, everything that you enjoy in life, Everything, C.S. Lewis says, and I'm going I'm to read you just a small excerpt. I'm not going to read you the whole quote because we don't have time. I'm going to read you a small excerpt at the end. He says, all these things essentially are echoes of Eden. They're echoes of Eden. He says, for they, the things that you enjoy, are not actually the pleasure themselves, but they're pointing to something else that is much more pleasurable than the vacation or the stake and this is what he says. He says, For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never visited. He says, They are echoes of Eden. Because God makes everything good for our pleasure, that we would enjoy it and thereby enjoy Him. And so everything that you enjoy in life, church, everything that you enjoy as a good gift from God's hands is not meant to be the end, but a means to enjoying him who has given it. This is why I would say that only Christians can enjoy those things to their fullest. Not that a non-Christian can enjoy a good meal, can enjoy good sex, can enjoy a good vacation. They can, but they can enjoy it in all of its fullness. Because for them, it's an end in and of itself. But for those who understand what God has done in his work of bringing all things into existence and making everything good, for them, it is taking their hearts and lifting them up. Lifting them up. So that everything that brings us pleasure is ultimately the means by which we're glorifying the God who has created it. That's what he envisions. Now, before I let you go, we're going to sing one last song. We're going to do so. I'm going to ask David and Elizabeth to come up and lead us in one last song as we close. Um, I know I, I went a long time this morning. Um, it's the nature of the beast sometimes. Um, but here's, here's what I want you to do. Here's what I want you to consider. That how do you respond then? Some of you are sitting out there going, how do, how do you respond to this? Okay, I've heard all this content. How do you respond to this? The fact that God has made us everything out of nothing. The fact that God's created us in his image. That God has made everything good for our good and his glory. That God gets to define the boundaries. How do you respond to this God? 
The book of Revelation tells us, in Revelation chapter 4, it says, all these echoes should lead us to sing and surrender. Revelation 4.11, you got all these creatures surrounding the throne as John sees this vision in heaven, and this is what they're saying. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And so they are worshiping God because of what he has done in saying, let there be. That is the only appropriate response to the God who says, let there be. So I want to invite you to stand and sing and surrender your life to this God who said, let there be, and you were.